Turn to Matthew chapter 6 in your Bibles, please. Matthew 6, this will be our last sermon on this section of what it is we're to pray before God. We've looked at why it is we should pray. We started the series. Now we looked at what it is we should pray, walking through this Lord's Prayer. As Jesus has revealed to his disciples, the basic priorities of prayer. And so we're going to conclude that section this morning. Before we begin, let's pray and ask God to work in our hearts. Father, it is good to praise you. It is good to be reminded of who you are and who we are, how big you are, how little we are. We're thankful to you that you give us your spirit and your word and your body, the church, so that we might make it through the trials and the struggles and the difficulties, the pains and the sorrows and be formed into the image of your beloved Son. This morning, even as you teach us to pray, may we understand, may we love you more and trust you more, delighting in all that you are and all that you've done, and may you help us to gain perspective in this world, for we ask it in Christ. Amen. I'm going to begin with a question, and I want you to raise your hand. How many here have, right now, the Bible they use is an ESV, English Standard Version? Raise your hand. Okay, how many of you here have a King James Version? Anybody? New King James. Are there any other? Are there any NIVs here? A couple NIVs? Anything else? Have I missed anything? <laughs> well, here's the reason I ask that. Because I'm going to be preaching on a verse that is not in the ESV. <gasps> You're going to be looking at something that is not there. If you'll notice, at verse 13, it ends, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Do you remember how we prayed this morning as we prayed together? Is that how we ended the Lord's Prayer? No, we didn't. Because it ends, there's a doxology at the end, right? For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. The New King James has it in there. The ESV does not. What's going on? <laughs> is that what's going on? <laughs> I'm, so I'm, I'm actually going to be a, uh, preaching on a text that doesn't exist in even the Bible I'm using here, but it does exist in many, many manuscripts. However, there are some, and there's one in particular manuscripts that it does not exist in, and some translators have made the decision that because it did not exist in that text that they would remove it. They think that it was added by the Jewish um, congregations later on because it was a very common doxology ending to a lot of their prayers. However, I think it, it for several reasons, needs to be in there. And I think R.C. Sproul encapsulates this debate and the reasoning and the thinking very well. I'm going to read a, a, a short um, quote from him as he describes um, the issue that's going on here. It says, many of the ancient manuscripts include the doxological ending of the prayer, but some do not. Among them, and here's the text, the Codex Vaticanus. Probably botched the pronunciation of that. 
but it's, it's the, one of the most important of the ancient texts. As a result, there is a widespread belief among scholars that this ending was not in the original prayer, but was added very soon afterwards because it was customary among the Jews to conclude their prayers with a doxology. He went on to say, one of the most beautiful aspects of this concluding line of the Lord's Prayer is that it returns focus to God. And R.C. is one of the scholars, one of the scholars that believes it needs to be, a, it should be a part of it. Now, I'm not here to, to lay out all the arguments as to why or why not. I just want to show you that it's, it's there. But nobody can argue against the theology about what it's saying. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. We all, we'd all, every Orthodox Christian would stand up and shout, Amen. Absolutely. That, that if anything, is the teaching of Scripture. So, we're, we don't have to, you know, wrangle over whether or not these words are really, truly the words of Scripture and they define the thrust and teaching and instruction of Scripture. There's no question, there's no doubt. That is not even on the table for any scholar. So we'll leave it at, leave it at that. We'll just get to the point that I think that needs to be made here in understanding is that this really does end the prayer well. It almost seems strange to me if Jesus just ended it and lead us not in temptation but deliver us from evil and then he moves on. Most prayers do in all of Jewish history, have a doxological, a kind of an ending like this, where God is glorified. It kind of serves as a perfect bookend, doesn't it? We start with God and we end with God. And it's a, it's a great way to bring everything back into perspective as to what we've just prayed. The other thing is it actually is, it's, it's almost the direct words that we had read for us this morning from 1 Chronicles uh, chapter 29, verse 11. It says, or this is where David is praying, and he says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, and the glory, the victory, and the majesty. For all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. Now those are almost, I mean, his is stretched out a little bit, but there's the exact words and verbiage that's used here. King David under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, puts this in his prayer. I think this is just a wonderful, glorious end that even the church throughout history has used in their liturgies, um, in their prayers. So enough said about that. I think that the, I, the argument can be clearly made that this can and should and ought to be a part of it, but if people, translators like the ESV, voted it off, they voted it off the island, but the content, the theology, the understanding needs to be brought back on. So I want to begin this morning by thinking about this phrase when it says, listen to what we say, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. I'm going to deal with these first two words here. For thine is the kingdom and the power. And what Jesus was calling them to do here and pray about is something very significant. When we pray that to God alone, to him belongs the kingdom and the power, do you know what we are affirming? We are affirming a revolution. Did you hear that? We are affirming a revolution. Hopefully you ask, why? Why is that? We need to understand what we're saying here. When we say that yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory, we're saying in Jesus' day that Caesar's is not. Now, does that sound like a big deal? Well, maybe not to us. 
But if you were actually to pray this out loud and Romans heard you, that the kingdom for thine, Lord God, for thine is the kingdom and the power, those words could have you beheaded. Because in those days, in that kingdom, who did the kingdom and the power belong to? Caesar. And he was thought of as a god. And anybody who detracted from that, anybody who would claim to, be a, a, to have the kingdom and the power above him, well, this person is his chief competitor. No way. There is no possible way. I alone, Caesar thought, had it all. But Jesus comes along and he says, I want you to pray like this. And I want to understand something. There's a, there is a cosmological shift about to happen. You are going to be praying for something that's going to change the course of the world. Jesus came preaching what? The gospel of the kingdom. Jesus didn't just come preaching it, declaring it. He came manifesting it, said, something has happened on earth. Something is changing on planet earth. The kingdoms of men, the kingdoms of this world are being brought low, being brought down. There's a change in power happening. And Jesus was bringing it. Now, what significance does this have? Well, massive significance. Because when we say, for thine is the kingdom and the power, we're not talking about a kingdom and power that's anything like Caesar's, anything like the United States. It's different. Because the kingdoms of this world, you know what they're about? Power, greed, clutching, grabbing, oppressing. That's what they're about. They're about evil. As soon as you give, give men power, men lust for power, then all the wicked people will scratch and grab and try to go after it. They want it. Because it's in their heart to want to dominate, to be on top, to be the rule. We know even in our own flesh, every person here, we long at times, it would be nice to be king for a day, wouldn't it? To be able to say, when I can say something and it happens, we don't like to be frustrated. We don't like our will to be impinged. We like to have what we say happen. We don't like to live in a world where we have to give in, where we have to submit, where we have to do the things that we don't like to do. That world, we don't like that. Our flesh repulses that. We love a world where we're on top, and we can have our own way. So men, they love the seed of power. They're after the ring of power. And in men's kingdom, the kingdoms, kingdoms of men have always been kingdoms that have been loving, clutching, grabbing power. That's what's marked them. Jesus comes, the king of our kingdom. What is this kind of kingdom that we're praying for? For thine is the kingdom, thine is the power. What kind of kingdom, what kind of power is it? Well, Jesus comes and what does he do? Is he clutching for power? He doesn't even go talk to Herod. The only time he talks to Pilate is when he's forced in the situation. Where is he at? What is he doing? He's in the, with the outcasts, the sinners, the rejects, the ones that nobody wants, the very ones that the kingdom on the, of this earth is oppressing. He's down there, our king, with those people freeing the oppressed, setting the captives free, giving sight to the blind giving ears to those who are deaf, releasing the captives. 
Here's our king. This kingdom, for we say thine is the kingdom and the power, it is nothing like the kingdoms of this world and nothing like power in this world. The power that Jesus brings is a power to set people free. Jesus can speak and water storms, rocks, dance. He has a power. He could look at Caesar and he could look and, and he could just calmly say, Caesar, die. Caesar's dead. That's his power. So now, does he come flexing his muscles? No, he comes as a suffering servant. He comes as one to serve, to wash people's feet. He's washing the guy's feet that he created by his very word. He comes not not with a kingdom and not with a power that this world knows or understands. We're weirded out. And we, even as Christians, we struggle with this. We struggle because we still, in our flesh, we're tempted by the world's kind of kingdom. We're tempted by the world's kind of power. But we pray of thy kingdom, and thine is the kingdom, thine is the power, and, when, and it is yours, and it's different. We want it to come. We want it to advance on the earth. We want God's kingdom to be here. And this is an upside-down kingdom where the weak are strong where the humble are raised up and the proud are brought low. It's the exact opposite. You don't have Caesar on top flexing his muscles, oppressing the people. You have the king at the bottom raising up the lowly. Exact opposite. So when we pray, thine is the kingdom and the power, we need to understand those words, they're revolutionary words. We're saying it's not Caesar's, It's not Rome's, it's not the United States, it's not any man's. God's kingdom belongs to God, he is king and lord, and he is the one with all ultimate power and authority. You know what also this means? It means that the kingdoms of this world, the Caesars and all, all the guys who really think they're so powerful, they've got nothing. They've got nothing. What's their greatest weapon? The thing that they can hold over you? Death. It's their greatest weapon. They've always used it. They've, you know, if you want to defy Rome, you're going to be crucified for everybody to see. And you know why they crucify you? Because it's the most painful and excruciating way to die. And everybody can see what happens to those who defy Rome. Those who defy Caesar. And it creates fear in the people. Look, and look what will happen to you. You submit to me. You honor me. You fear me because look, I have the power of death, excruciating death. And Jesus mocks that power. It's nothing. I will take it on, he says. He takes it on. And not only that, I will bust the chains of death. You thought you had the power of death? I've got the power over death. I conquered death. And it's because of Jesus' resurrection that he comes now and transforms this new group of people who are ushering in the kingdom of God, this new upside-down kingdom that's completely unlike the kingdoms of this world. And now these servants are bubbling up all over the place. These people who are laying their lives down, sacrificing themselves, giving and serving and blessing. 
And this is different. The world hasn't seen these kinds of people before, filled with the Spirit of God. But the world continues to flex its muscles and seek to overthrow the kingdom of God. But even with their greatest power, the church has always laughed at it. Charles Spurgeon retells some stories from Fox's Book of Martyrs. And it reveals the two kingdoms in conflict and where the true power lies and how this, this is a continual situation we find on the earth. He stated, when one of the martyrs was about to burn for Christ, he said to the judge who was giving orders to, the fire, to fire the pile, will you come and lay your hand on my heart? The judge did so. Does it beat fast? inquired the martyr. Do I show any signs of fear? No, said the judge. Now lay your hand on your heart, your own heart, and see whether you are not more excited than I am. And sure enough, he was. Or think of the man, that, the, uh, the man of God who, on the morning that he was to be burned, was so soundly asleep that they had to shake him to wake him. He had to get up to be burned. And yet knowing that it was so, he had such confidence in God, and God so graciously and mercifully met him with his grace that he slept sweetly. He goes on to say, During the Diocletian persecutions, when the Christian martyrs came into the amphitheaters to be torn by wild beasts, and were set on red-hot iron chairs or smeared with honey to be stung to death by wasps and bees. They never flinched. Think of the brave man who was put on a gridiron to be roasted to death. He said to his persecutors, you've done me on one side. No, turn me to the other. And this is the world flexing its muscles. This is the kingdom and the power of the world. And it's nothing. It's got nothing on God. It's got nothing on his kingdom. It's got nothing on his power. And why? Our Lord has conquered death. And because of this, no longer do the kingdoms of this world hold any threat over us. Not only Jesus rose from the dead and then he pours out his spirit and he fills you with his spirit to give you comfort, to give you strength, to give you wisdom, to give you the grace that you need to stand in that evil day. And you know what? The kingdoms of this world are being overthrown by these very acts. By their crushing us, they spread us. It's kind of like the little boy who thinks he's destroying the dandelion by blowing the, you know, the way the seeds in the air. He, 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 with his little breath, he takes it and goes, he loves to see that all is left is scrawny little stick. But what he doesn't realize is that a thousand little soldiers went off into daddy's lawn. (laughs) And they're going to multiply. That's what the world's kingdom and power is like. 
God will use their evil. He's going to use their swords. He's going to use their cannons. He's going to use all their might and all their power to backfire in their face. Because in trying to crush us, they spread us. They have no power. That kingdom is a kingdom that is going to be low, laid low and destroyed. And so when we stand up and we pray, thine is the kingdom, thine is the power, we have to understand the kingdom and the power referring to is not a kingdom of this world, it's not a power of this world, it's from on high. And that kingdom, we pray this with confidence, knowing that that kingdom is going to destroy the kingdoms of this earth. How? We're not overcome by evil, but we overcome evil with good. We will love them to death. So that is what we pray for. When we pray for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. But there's also a little, there's a word I left off there. The kingdom, the power, and the last word is glory. It says, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. And I did this, I separated this for a purpose because I think this word in and of itself is important to look at. The kingdom and the power are often associated. But the glory of the kingdom, and when Jesus was speaking to this, there's a particular glory that man always delights in. It's self-exalted glory, self-promotion. And man does this in many ways. We all know in our particular culture, what we do, if we want to glorify ourselves, we get status symbols. We try to get the ring of power, and if not, we try to get money that can give us images and an image that lets everybody know that we're up here. So the way we dress, the car we drive, the home we have, the way we decorate, we seek to glorify. And there's a particular way that we can glorify ourselves. We can be honored. We can be esteemed. We can, have, we can look really dazzling, have that spectacular vehicle, that outrageous um, Man, man, outrageously manicured lawn. We can do a lot of things to seek to glorify ourselves. But when we're praying this, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, we're also praying something about this glory that is different. It's not like a glory in this world. This glory was revealed in Jesus. It says in John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is very common verse most of us have probably heard it before and guess what and we beheld his glory he goes on to describe this glory the glory of the only begotten of the father full of grace and truth this glory of the only begotten of the father full of grace and truth do you know what? Jesus But Jesus didn't come as a glowing, shining light bulb. He, he wasn't even noticed or wasn't even recognized. His glory was in his grace. His glory was in his speaking of the truth. One, this one, his glory, the one who came in, in full of grace and truth, that was his glory. It was a glory full of grace, kindness, humility. It was a glory full of truth, wisdom, and light proclaimed to the multitudes. He came to serve, not to be served. That's God's glory in service. You remember when Jesus was talking to his disciples and they all were clutching and grabbing, not just for power, but they wanted to be glorified. Who can sit at his right hand? 
And they were all still in the old world of thinking, weren't they? The old kingdom thoughts. The old kingdom, you clutch, you grab, you run after, you maneuver, you, you, bring the, you bring the top dog aside and try to get his ear and say, hey, listen, can I, have your, can I be at your right hand? That was the old way. And then Jesus quickly rebukes them. Because that's the way of the Gentiles. Not so among you. But you, among you who wants to be the greatest, let him be the least. You who want to rise up, you must become the greatest servant of all. That's how my kingdom works. That's how glory works. That's how the right hand is accomplished. Why is Jesus exalted above every name that is named, both in heaven and on earth? Because nobody's humbled himself lower. If you want to see how glory works in God's kingdom, it's not a self-indulged glory. You don't clutch. You don't grab. You don't seek to advance yourself. You don't seek to glorify yourself. You seek to humble yourself. And as you go down, God lifts up. And in this earth, if there's suffering, as there's trials, as there's difficulties, as there's sorrows, we take them on waiting on the Lord. Waiting on the Lord, waiting on the Lord. In faith, we trust, we know this is something we wait on. In God's kingdom, it's reversed. I don't clutch, I don't grab, I don't run after, I don't get self-exalted, I don't look for praise. I do not look for my glory from men. I do not look for glory in this world. I look for glory, the true glory. It's a glory, as we pray, that lasts forever. It's eternal. It's not the glory of this fading flower we have on earth. The glory of men, it always perishes. It's so much like a flower, isn't it? The springtime, all of a sudden what pops out of the ground are these beautiful little flowers. Poof, and they have a glory about them. They're radiant. They're delightful. They just seem like, wow, look at the beauty. But what happens a couple weeks later as they rivel up and die? The glory's gone. They actually become ugly. You ever see the rhododendrons around here? Look at this radiant glory, just beautiful. It seemed like two weeks later, the whole whole tree turns like into a monster. And all around the bottom are all these gross dead leaves are all turning brown. And the first thing you want to do is you want to take and throw them in the trash heap. Get rid of them. They're disgusting. That's the glory of men. Here today, gone tomorrow, like a fading flower. But the glory that we're, we're after, the glory that we exalt in, the glory that we praise, the glory that we delight in is a glory that lasts forever because it's the glory of God. For thine is the glory. It's eternal. And it's achieved, this glory, it comes from this kingdom by way of lowliness. It, we have to be realized that it's, it's the seed that's willing to die and fall into the ground that rises up and sprouts into glory. This is how it works. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 17 through 18, Paul states, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Did you hear that? Our light afflictions, which are but for a moment, are working f- for us. They're working. They're at work. Something's going on in all these things. They're building a bank account. A far exceeding and eternal weight of glory. See the word eternal? Unlike the flower, eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, which are so tempting, that's what our flesh does. But at the things that are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. 
we do this by faith. We pray for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. Have you guys seen God? Anybody? No, you haven't seen him. He's unseen. His kingdom is not like the kingdoms of this world. It's all backwards and upside down. And it's not even something that we're, we, don't, we don't see thrones and dominions. But it's here, it's advancing, and it's growing. Have you seen his glory? No, it's to be revealed. These are things we do by faith. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, and everything else, the glory in this world, the power of this world, the kingdoms of this world are going down. And yet with our eyes, we see the kingdoms of this world rising up. We see guys receiving glory, and we think, you know, that maybe that's the way. We're tempted by the ways of the world. The world tempts us and draws us, and we, we run after the glory of the world. Because we, our flesh likes that. That's easy to believe in. It looks, but then we watch long enough and then it fades and dies and goes away. What we're believing in, we're holding fast in our promises, what we know to be true because faith has been planted in our hearts by the Spirit. We are people, believing saints, who when we pray for thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, you cannot pray that unless you pray it by faith because it's not something you see. It's something that we have to patiently, by faith, wait for, long for, look for, and know it only by how the scriptures reveal it to us. We pray things, say things, and believe things that the world laughs at. It's a hilarious joke. This is all you got, folks. You better go after it. But we're waiting. We're choosing suffering. We're choosing service. We're choosing submission because we're choosing a glory. A glory that is yet to be revealed, which is eternal. None of this two-bit, shallow, surfacey, here today, gone tomorrow stuff. We're, we're, our eyes are on the eternal. So we've prayed this prayer hundreds of times, hundreds of times at this church. When we say, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, what are we saying? We are saying that God's kingdom, God is a God, of, and it's his kingdom. He has, all, he has the kingdom, he has all the power, he has all the glory. And what we're saying in this, when we're praying that is it's not here in this world. The world's kingdom, the world's power, and the world's glory, it's nothing. I'm not after it. I don't like it. I don't love it. I don't want it. I want God's kingdom. I want God's power. I want God's glory. And I want to be a partaker in that. That is what I want. The real stuff, the true stuff, the stuff that's unseen. Not the stuff we see that's quickly fading away. So hopefully when we pray this now, there's, some, there's a different meaning. And then just, thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. That's how you end the prayer. Amen. Let's go on. Let's have dinner. No, no, this is rich. This is deep. We end how we began. We began and we said, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your name be glorified. May your name be exalted. Our passion is for your name's exaltation and glory. And that's my life, my food, my joy when I see your name exalted. Your kingdom come. So your will is done on earth as it is in heaven. That's my passion. 
That's what I pray for. That's my top priority in prayer. I want your kingdom extended. I want your name hallowed and exalted. I want to see all men everywhere repent. I want to see the churches full. I want to see men, women, and children flooding into the, flooding into the kingdom. And I want to see them baptized. I want to see them go from frowns to smiles. I want to see them going from like serving their own kingdom and purposes, their own glory and power, to serving God's glory and power and looking for his glory, looking for his kingdom, delighting in him, rejoicing in him, giving thanks in him. That's what I want to see. So I start our, we start our prayers like that, and then we end, and we say, and we affirm the truth. We end with this great doxological praise, for thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory. It's not here. It's not the kingdoms of this world. It's not the power of this world, not the glory of this world. It's yours, and to that I live and die. Amen. Father, thank you. Thank you that you are exalted above the heavens and that you love the humble, you delight in the weak, and you raise up the lowly. I thank you that your kingdom is not like the kingdoms of this world that are just full of greed and lust and selfish power. But your kingdom is filled with love, joy, peace. Yours is the kingdom. Power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.